I want to pray for us today as I did last Sunday. Today is not going to be one of those woohoo Sundays. Today is one of those like, oh, man, that's hard. It's one of those. So I need to pray that we would have courage today to be honest with God, with ourselves, and even with others. So Holy Spirit, we invite you and your presence here. There are going to be moments this morning where for some of us, we're just going to want to just shut down and shut out voices. So this morning I pray for vulnerability and courage to be rigorously honest with who we are. See God, the good news is you already know. You know everything there is to know about us and yet you say, I love you unconditionally. That's never going to change. And some of us know that in our heads, but we don't know it in our hearts. So we're fearful, we're anxious, we're worried, we're insecure, we're running from truth and reality. So Holy Spirit, I am so dependent on you today because you have to do the work today. I can't. So we invite you here in our midst. In your name, amen. Confession, your pastor didn't live without limits or yeah, he, oh no, he lived without limits this week. We had a denominational conference at Hyatt O'Hare, and I just wore myself out, not take care of myself. <laughs> lived without limits this week, so just want to confess that up and uh, offer that to you. So I feel a little depleted this morning, so I want to ask that even as you're listening, that you'd pray for me. Got me? Okay. And secondly, as I said last Sunday, just to know that we're on the same page, I need you to respond, say, mm-hmm, mm-mm, whatever. Raise your hands, do what, amen, preach or whatever. Because um, we're all in this together. And not one of us in here totally emotionally healthy. I'm just going to let these statements speak for themselves. I'm not even going to say them. I'm just going to ask them to just put it up and just give some. Do any of these statements go through your mind? First one. Slide, please. Next one, please. Next one, please. Next one, please. I love it. Maybe I should preach like this the whole time. Just put up, just put up statements and go. Mm. <laughs> Man, I love you, church family. Next one, please. Next one, please.
Next one, please. Next one, please. I'm serious. I think I'm going to preach like this next week. I'm just going to, I'm just going to put up slides. It's like the YouTube video. You know, people just kind of put up cards. <laughs> next one, please. We're almost, almost done. Next one, please. This next one is new community. Next one, please. Next one, please. And lastly, emotional health, our ability to be self-aware and love well, and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to become spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. We launched a sermon series last Sunday, church. And one of the things that I wanted to hammer away for those of us who grew up in church environments where discipleship was primarily intellectual, knowledge And we even use scripture passages like, but then the Bible say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As if the more Bible knowledge you have, the more mature you become. But we said last week that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are made in the image of God, but being made in the image of God means there are multiple dimensions of who we are as human beings. And intellectual dimension is just one of it. We are physical beings. We are relational beings. We are social beings. And yes, we are emotional beings. When you take that dimension, you put it over there and go, that has nothing to do with Christianity. I'm going to do all these other things. The consequences are devastating, not just in our relationship to God, but to each other and even to ourselves. I don't like putting long quotes because I know people kind of tend to tune out. So I don't do long quotes. But when they're exceptionally important, I put them up. So I'm going to put this next quote up as I did last Sunday too. I, I promise this is the long, only long quote today. Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. Anybody know what that's like? We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain a tenuous control of our inner world. We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. 
and neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. And here it is. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. If you are not growing spiritually, you need to ask the question, am I brutally honest with God, with others, and myself? Or am I pretending? Am I living in denial? And is there utter vulnerability and dependence on God? I told you guys to get used to this picture, this this picture of an iceberg, because we're going to be coming back to it again. again. The tip of the iceberg, what I'll call tip of the iceberg spirituality, is where, unfortunately, a lot of discipleship in the church focuses on, which is Bible study, community groups, worship, which are all great things. But that's the 10% that people observe about you and me. It's the underneath the iceberg, the 90% of our lives that's not perceptible to the other people where our deep, sometimes messy, sometimes dark, sometimes very broken stuff lies. And it's that stuff that comes out when you're under stress. It's that stuff that comes out when you hit a wall. It's that stuff that comes out when there's conflict. It's that stuff that seeps out of us. And the good news last week, again, is that Jesus, was, Jesus Christ wants to transform all of us, not just the tip of the iceberg. Amen? That he really is out to change in the entirety of who we are. That he's not just interested in who you are on the surface to other people. He is really interested in, yeah, let's do the hard work of digging underneath what's in the iceberg. The dark, deep stuff that you've maybe bury and maybe even go, that has nothing to do with God and spirituality. And it's that stuff that Jesus says, I want to get to. Now, here's the thing, though. God will not drag you to emotional health and spiritual maturity. I wish he did. I wish he did. I wish that's how he worked in my life. I wish he smacked me and dragged me against my will. But as I said last week, he will not drag any of us to emotional health and spiritual maturity. We have to be willing. So as we asked the question, do you want to get well? Hmm? Do you want to get well? I'm sorry, I can't do more review every week. I just need to move on. If you did not, you need to look at the sermon video from last Sunday. Be caught up each week so you know where we are. Today we're going to talk about this other aspect of emotional health, which is self-awareness. Knowing what's going on inside. Because that's indispensable to emotional health and loving well. You and I need... To be able to love and respect who we are because of what God has done in order for us to respect and love other people well. And today we're going to look at somebody who did not do this well and his life blew up. And he's going to remind some of you and me today that we're headed down the same path. His name is Saul. First king of Israel. We find his story in First Samuel chapter 15. It's a long passage. And again, I know people tend to tune out. They just kind of go, oh, okay, I'm going to come back when he's done reading the Bible. You need to actually pay attention to the text. Okay? 
Here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down onto Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this? That I hear. Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spare the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me. Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order, you know, so that they could sacrifice them to the Lord. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. The text says that Samuel got up really early in the morning. Why? He hadn't slept. Couldn't sleep. Why couldn't Samuel sleep? If you read the rest of 1 Samuel 15, you know this. Samuel is the one that anointed Saul. Samuel mentored Saul. Samuel loves Saul. But Saul has a fatal flaw in his character and his life that eventually leads to his downfall. The incredible thing is, and some of the men study for Samuel, 2 Samuel, Saul actually starts out great. He is an anointed man. He is, he is, he is, King extraordinaire. You'd look at him and go, yeah, that dude's a king. But pretty quickly we find out that there's a pattern in Saul's life. Pattern that keeps tripping him up that many of us struggle with. Now, the, the, the background text real quick and then, and then we need to move on. The Amalekites. God says, the Amalekites, I want you to go to war on them. Who are the Amalekites? The Amalekites are a neb- neighboring tribe. And God says, I want you to engage them in battle. Why? Because they're wicked people who kill innocent people and are committing atrocities. And God says, so engage them in war. But, 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 Saul, so when you engage them in war afterwards, take nothing with you. 
Don't take any prisoners. Take none of their wealth. If you find treasure, throw it out. Throw it out. If you find their livestock, then slaughter all of it. But what has Saul done? The exact what? Opposite of what God asked him to do. He's kept the best of the livestock. Which, by the way, the livestock is the wealth of the Amalekites. We're talking about a culture where people aren't using coins or treasure yet. So livestock is your wealth. So Saul has kept the best of the wealth. Real quick, I need to do a... (laughs) I'm going to do this in like three minutes. I'm going to do a biblical theology of war in three minutes, okay? Three minutes, all right? War, Afghanistan, Iraq, three minutes. I know you'll have more questions afterwards, but I'm just going to, three minutes, okay? Here's theology of war according to scripture, okay? In case you're wondering. When you hear God saying, go into battle and don't leave a single person or animal alive, there's many of us who go, that's awful. That, that, that angry, wrathful God of the Old Testament stuff, that's absolutely awful. But I want you to hear what God is saying to Saul. What God is saying to Saul is this. I want you to engage the wicked people. And we're going to go into a little bit in battle. But I want you to listen very carefully. I want this war to be an act of justice. Yeah. Not for wealth. Or not for power. Or for profit. Did you hear me? God says there are wicked people. They're committing all kinds of atrocities. How do you deal with a group of people who are killing innocent people? How do you deal with people who are murdering men, women, and children? How do you deal with people like that? And here's what we need to wrestle with. I'm not saying of all the answers. Here's what you need to wrestle with. You need to wrestle with the fact that sometimes force is necessary. Because if innocent people are being slaughtered and murdered, and we do nothing about it, we might be complicit in that injustice. Can I say that again? When innocent people are being murdered and slaughtered and good people do nothing, it might mean that we are complicit in that injustice. And there's all kinds of social implications right now. Again, three-minute sermon on this and then we've got to move on. But God says to Saul, this is the other challenge. I don't want you to use force the way the Amalekites use force. How do the Amalekites use force? They do it for wealth. They do it for power. They do it for profit. But I will not let you become like the Amalekites. Take no slaves. Take no plunder. This here is for truth and for justice. Not for profit. Not for power. Let me ask you a question. How many wars in the history of mankind has been fought purely for justice sake, purely for truth sake, and not for profit and for power? Answer? Answer? Not that many. Here's the conclusion to my three-minute sermon on theology of war. Sometimes, God says, force is necessary, When innocent people are being murdered and killed. Why? To do nothing might mean that we're complicit. But, but, big but, big, big but. If you dare use force on anyone, you better make sure it's not for profit, for power, for wealth. (laughs) I know I opened up a can of worms. That's just what I do. We need to move on. Discuss among your small groups. <laughs> Don't get lost though. Don't you go, oh yeah, theology of war. Here's what you need to happen. Saul was just like you and me. 
And yet he becomes this other person. How does that happen? How does that happen? Here's how it happens. Interpreted key, verse 19. Verse 19, Samuel says, Why didn't you obey the instructions of the Lord? And verse 20, Saul comes right back and says, But I did obey the instructions of the Lord. You need to understand, Hebrew is a beautiful language. In Hebrew, there is no word for obey. Did you know that? The Hebrew word for obey, English Bible, is we literally, it's listen. So in other words, what, 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 what you need to, every time you see the English word obey, what the Hebrew text actually is saying. So Samuel is saying to Saul, why did you not listen to the voice of the Lord? To which Samuel comes back and says, but I did listen to the voice of the Lord. But Samuel comes right back and says what? This is the interpretive key. This is the interpretive key. Samuel says, to listen to the voice of the Lord is better than sacrifice, but to heed. That is, to truly grasp what it is that you just heard. To heed, that is, to be affected by what it is that you just heard is better than the fat of ram. In other words, you could hear something, but not really hear. Let me put it this way. You could know that something is wrong, but not really know that that thing is wrong, because you don't really want to know that it's wrong. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Say yes if you do. Do you know what self-deception is? Self-deception is this amazing, unlimited capacity that you and I have to know that something is wrong. But we don't really know that it's wrong because we don't really want to know that it's wrong. We have this amazing capacity. Can I talk to this section? To know that something is wrong in our lives, but we deny that it's wrong. We live in denial. We justify all kinds of things to say it's not wrong. Because we don't really want to know that it's wrong. Now here's the thing. Self-deception is not the worst thing in the world. All of us in here are self-deceived. But self-deception is the reason why we do some of the worst things. Which is worse, to be an alcoholic or to be in denial that you're an alcoholic? Which is worse, that your marriage is in trouble or to be in denial that your marriage is in trouble? Should I keep going? Yes? No, I can't keep going because it's going to get really uncomfortable. Because y'all sitting there going, he's in my head right now. I'll tell you, you know what you and I do? That's how we do it. Well, everybody's doing it. I can stop any time. You and I have this, listen, 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 please. Do you realize the amazing ability that every single one of us in this room has this morning to justify doing things we know are wrong? Because deep down inside, we don't know. 
we don't want to know and we live in denial of it? Do you realize the capacity that we have to know that something is wrong but to not know it because we don't want to do you realize how many marriages in this are not healthy which is more dangerous the fact that your marriage is not healthy or the fact that you refuse to admit that it's not healthy How does Saul do this? Verse 13, Saul goes, I listened to the voice of the Lord. I want you to know, I listened, Samuel. And what's funny is, before that, here's what happens, okay? Let me just picture for you. So Samuel walks up to Saul. And before Samuel says anything, Saul goes, I did it. Samuel, I did it. I did exactly what God asked me to do. Which means what? He knows that he what? Did not do what God asked him to do. I did it. I did listen to Samuel's going, but I didn't ask anything yet. I haven't said anything yet. We, we just smother the truth. Let me give you three examples and then we're going to move on. Three examples. There's a father with a kid who's an amazing athlete. Amazing athlete. But he constantly gets kicked out of high schools. Constantly gets kicked out of high schools. Why? Every high school he goes to, he gets accused of stealing. So every time, every time the principal calls and says, your son stole something again, the father barges into the principal and says, all the kids are just jealous. The teachers are incompetent. None of you, none of you, none of you know what my child is like. Takes him out of school. But at home, he likes up everything. At home, the father locks up everything. At home, the father locks up everything. Why? He knows, but he doesn't know because, say with me, he doesn't want to know. This young woman who moves to Chicago. She wants to be a musician and artist. Grew up in a Christian home. But she comes to Chicago and she wants to be accepted. She wants to get that gig. And she desperately wants to keep that boyfriend who wants to sleep with her. She knows deep down inside there is a God. There is a right or wrong. There are moral absolutes. She knows. But how does she justify what she's doing? She says to herself, well, no Christians are perfect. All Christians are hypocrites. We all know that. She knows. But she doesn't know. But she doesn't want to know. And then I heard this story. After World War II, when the Allied forces were going into all the towns, the first town that they came to in Germany, it's hard for me to even just talk about first time they came in, first town that they came into, what they found out was that the German soldiers, before they left, to get rid of all the evidence, exhumed dead bodies, 2,000 of them, and tried to incinerate them in ovens. The Allied forces got there, and they saw this tragic, tragic thing. And, 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 and the day after, the story says that General Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower, got to the town. He went into the oven, promptly vomited. He came out. And they asked some of the, some of the prisoners, what, what, what happened? And the prisoners told the story. The German soldiers would every night go into town. They would womanize. They would drink. They would do all kinds of things. They would brag. And the prisoners said, the townspeople must have known what was happening back here. Eisenhower goes into town. And he talks to some of the townspeople. To which they said, we didn't know what was going on back there. The soldiers just kind of came 
And Eisenhower apparently said, whether you know or didn't know, not the issue. Here's what you're going to do. Every single one of you, every single one of you will go back to the camp with me. You're all going to dig individual graves for each of the bodies and you're going to bury it. Starting with you, mayor, and your wife. That night, the townspeople came and they dug graves and buried all the bodies. And that night, the mayor and his wife committed suicide. They hung themselves. And they left a note. And the note said, we didn't know, but we knew. The thing that enabled them, good, decent people, to go, we knew, but we didn't know. Do you realize the same mechanism is at work in all of us? The same mechanism that's at work in us. That's keeping, I'm just going to go down the list. That's keeping some of us from admitting that we have a drinking problem. Same mechanism that keeps some of us from admitting that our marriage is in trouble. Same mechanism that keeps some of us from admitting that we're living someone else's life, not ours. Same mechanism that's keeping us from admitting that our body is breaking down. That you haven't forgiven your parents or that spouse. That you're not as together as you appear. That your ministry is more about you and not God. That your spouse is miserable. That your kids don't respect you. That you're a workaholic. That you're jealous about the favor that someone in your office is getting. That you and I come and outwardly worship God without dealing with the anger that we have for God and others. That we push our children out of fear. That we make decisions about our careers out of what other people think. That we're giving our bodies away sexually because we don't want to lose that relationship. If you are not willing to see that you and I have this enormous capacity to hide the truth from ourselves that are too painful, that we just don't admit, can I just say something? Isn't this why some of us are just so busy? Isn't busyness just so that we don't have to sit still and think about what's really going on? Does any of this make any sense this morning? How do you do this and how do I do this? Well, three ways and then we'll see the gospel solution and then we're done. One, blame shifting. Blame shifting. Anybody ever done this, by the way? Am I the only one? In Hebrew, when Saul says, I listen to the voice of the Lord. This is really, really cool. In Hebrew, when Samuel says, I listen to the voice of the Lord. You know what Samuel says? Samuel says, if you heard the voice of the Lord, then why do I hear the sheep and the cattle? And what does Saul say? <laughs> oh, the soldiers. The soldiers. I told them, but you know, the, the soldiers. By the way, in Hebrew, the word soldier is not even found. It's a general third person. They. You know, Them. They did it. They. 
The father says, my son is the best athlete. And all the other kids are just jealous. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. But it doesn't mean that your son's not a thief. The singer says, they're all hypocrites. Of course there are Christians who are hypocrites. They're doctors who are quacks. Does that mean all science and medicine is wrong? No, but we don't think that. Some of us, can I get personal, don't want to get married because you're deathly afraid of committing yourself to an imperfect person. But you don't want to think of yourself as a coward. So you think back on the 10 engagements you broke up and you go, they're all losers. That's what the problem is. They're all losers. So what do we say? My marriage is in trouble because my wife is controlling. My life is wrecked because my parents were never there. I love this one. I'm getting bad grades because my teachers can't teach. I don't pay taxes because the government's corrupt. Stop it. Help us, Jesus. This one, I lie because I don't want to tell them the truth and hurt their feelings. Some of you, I don't attend church because they're all hypocrites. Are you blame shifting so that you don't have to face the truth? Are you blame shifting so you don't have to face the truth? And by the way, a brilliant way we do this is what I'll call misdirection. That is, you look at the messenger and not the message, and you look at the messenger and go, You're not perfect. Who are you to tell me? Look at your life. Who are you to tell me? Here's the thing. Their life may be imperfect. Their life may be, but it doesn't mean that what they're trying to tell you is not true. But we don't want to think of it. So what do we do? We look at the messenger and go, if you just got, but that might have very little bearings on maybe what they're saying about me is true. Here's a second way. We hide behind morality and religiosity. Oh, good God. When Samuel asked, why did you keep the livestock? What is his answer? Because I want to perform a wonderful worship to the Lord. And Samuel, you could preach on. Isn't that great? Samuel says, get out of here with that. See, the scary thing for me is that religious people are some of the most susceptible, most vulnerable to self-deception about pride, cruelty, and selfishness. It's scary. If you're not a Christian here, you're going to love this next minute of my sermon. Christians are some of the worst people at being self-deceived about pride, selfishness, insecurity, and arrogance. Can I just say that? And we hide behind God and ministry in a God activity. Extreme examples are like the mafioso who say, I kill people for a living, but I'll never miss mass. It's the Christian who go, I am so materialistic, I can't stop shopping. But you know, I still give offering to the church. It's that person who says, I take advantage of my workers, but man, I'm teaching Sunday school. 
And this one, I was a youth pastor for eight years. Do you know what ruins kids? Do you know what ruins children when their dad is an elder in church and yet he's a terrible father at home? For eight years as a youth pastor, kid after kid after kid after kid, who would say, my dad is an elder in church, but I hate him. And if you're feeling a smug right now going, I'm not like that. Can I ask you something? The good work that you do, is that really to glorify God or to glorify you? The good work that you do in his name, did God really ask you to do that? Or is it more about your selfish ambition? Here's a third. I got to keep moving. Third sign of self-deception, insatiable need for people's approval. And this is what ultimately will do in Saul. Look at what verse 24, uh, 15 says. We didn't read this part. After Samuel confronts us, Saul says, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Follow, say the following with me. I was afraid of the people. And so I gave in to them. Anybody? Look at verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned. But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Good God. He has been stripped naked, vulnerable. The final confrontation that could potentially change his life for the good. And he can't get out of the fact that what people think about him is the most important thing in his life. A telltale sign that you and I are not emotionally healthy. A telltale sign. Please be rigorously honest this morning. A telltale sign that we are not emotionally healthy is we have an insatiable need for people to like us, for people to approve of us, for people to accept us. This is what happened to Saul. And listen, please, listen, please. When you and I allow the power of the outer world to dictate our inner world, when we allow the voices of the outer world to drown out the voice of our heavenly father we begin living a self false self life it's what jesus said when he said don't be like the hypocrites the word hypocrite literally comes from the world of theater play acting it's when you're one way in front of some and another way in front of other and the bible says the fastest way to get to hypocrisy is to care more about what other people think than what your father thinks of Do you post stuff on Facebook and wait for people to like it? And do you get really, really anxious when people don't like it as much as you want them to like it? Do you sometimes post stuff on Facebook because you thought it was catchy and witty and so smart and you don't get that many likes? And then you read someone else's post and it's stupid and it's simple and it's just, what? And they've got like 200 likes. You're like, what? I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about you. You cannot become emotionally healthy. You cannot grow spiritually. 
if who you are is being dictated by what other people say and think. And we find that Saul, by not facing this fear, it ended up consuming his life. Saul becomes increasingly jealous. And when God begins to raise up David as the next king, read, read that story. Saul's life devolves and there are six attempts to kill David and the rest of Saul, for Samuel. And the whole time he's totally unaware of the stuff going on inside of him. So, 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 what do we do? We've diagnosed the problem. What do we do? And, 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 and the next part is, is, is so critical and yet hard and difficult. You need to ask yourself this morning, ask why are certain truths painful for you to face? Why are certain truths painful to you? There are a lot of truths we don't hide from ourselves. There are a lot of truths we don't hide. There's some truths where, and by the way, some of us, some of us are brilliant at this. We let just enough truth out there for people to go, boy, they're really vulnerable. They really share. We've mastered that art. You know what I'm talking about? Community. Just enough out there. People go, boy, they're so vulnerable. But there are truths that we won't face. The truth we won't tell people. Why can't the father admit that his son's a thief? Why can't you admit that you drink too much? Why can't you admit that you're a coward? Why can't we admit that our marriage is in trouble? Why can't we admit that we're a people pleaser? Answer, look at verse 17. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you over, over Israel. In other words, Saul saying, you were once small in your eyes, but the Lord has made you great. Now, why would Samuel say this to Saul? Because we saw earlier in verse 12 that Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. Why does Saul need to set up a monument in his own honor? Why does he keep Agag, the king of Amalekites? Why? Because if you, as a king, have the king of Amalekites, you become the king of kings. And now people have to respect you. In other words, despite everything that God had done for him, Despite everything that God had done for him, Saul is still small in his eyes. Despite all that God has done for him, I am talking to you and to me. Despite all, despite all, despite all, despite all that God has done, despite all that God has done, Saul still needs his military victory. He still needs his monuments. He still needs the respect and approval of people to know that he's okay. And Samuel is saying, why are you still trying to make yourself great when God has already made you great why are you still trying to make a name for yourself when God has anointed you made you king and God has chosen you why are you Peter still acting as though you're small why are you new community covenant church Still going to the world to give you something that God has already given you. Are you hearing me? Why are you still trying to make yourself great? 
Why are you still trying to convince yourself? I need to get better grade. I need to get a better job. I need to make more money. I need to be more successful. I need this. I need that. I need this. I need that. When God has already given you what you need. If you're still small in your eyes, you will not have the courage to look deep underneath the stuff and ask why certain truths are painful to you because it's just going to be too traumatic unless the good news about who God is and who you are is real to you. You will not be able to deal with the bad news about what's wrong with you. Can I say that again, church? You will never, I will never overcome self-deception unless the truth, the good news about who God is and who we are is real so that we would have the courage and the vulnerability to look at the deep stuff and go, that's the truth about me. Because if God is how you know you're great, if you know that God loves you, If you know that God values you, if you know that God honors you, if you know that God delights in you, if you know that God has chosen you, if you know that God has anointed you with his favor and love, if those things are real to you and to me, we could handle the bad truth about who we are. And you know what else it allows to do? You could actually tell others. You could actually tell others. And telling others is critical for us on our journey of healing. We will never be able to tell the truth about underneath the iceberg stuff to other people if you do not have the security and the confidence and the courage of knowing I'm not small in his eyes anymore. He's made me great. But if your father and your son is how I know you're great, if your son is your monument, if your children are your honor, that's what your very self is based on, how in the world can you face the truth? Because if you don't have that, you don't even have a self. But if the father had known the good news, love of God, value of God, the honor of God, it might be hard for him to admit that his son's a thief. We might be able, it'd be hard to admit that our marriage is in trouble and they might go, I thought you were a Christian. We might be hard to admit that we struggle with certain addictions. It might be hard for us to admit the truth, bad news about who we are. But if you know who God is and what he has done for you. I need to end here in a little bit before I get to the good news. If you're sitting here going, I think I'm doing okay in those areas. Here's my challenge to you. And that is every single one of us. Every single one of us here is in danger of self-deception. Here's the reason why. Listen carefully. Because at the heart of self-deception is a refusal to handle the most traumatic truth of all. Do you know what the most traumatic truth is? Even though there are other things. The most traumatic truth is this. That there is a God. If there is a God, he owns you utterly. And we need to obey him completely. If there is a God, he's creator. He owns you and me completely. And we need to obey him utterly. If there is no God, all this is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. That's what Samuel is confronting. Everybody look up here. That's what Samuel is confronting us all with. 
He says, Saul says, I, but I sacrifice, I sacrifice. And Saul says, but you did the one thing that God wants. Saul goes, what, but I sacrifice sheep and cattle. And Samuel goes, yeah, but you reserve the right on when to obey and when not to. You reserve the right. Samuel's going, it doesn't matter if you disobey a million times out of a million times or one time out of a million times. When you ultimately decide when to obey, when not to obey, what to obey, what not to obey, you are still in charge. And that is the one thing that God wants that you're not giving him, which is utter and total obedience. But I'm doing all these good things, Lord. You decide one domain, one not two. You haven't given him the thing that he wants most. You. What's the answer and how do we overcome this? I got to end with the gospel, right? Because if I ended today's morning sermon by going, so try really hard. Well, here are the four steps. No, no. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Samuel says, God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants total obedience. Jesus says, God doesn't does want sacrifices, he wants total obedience. But if total obedience is what God expects of us, then we're toast. So what does Jesus do? The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen carefully, it's not that Jesus' obedience makes him holy. Jesus' obedience makes what? Us holy. Here's that Here's the gospel. And I hope this causes you to erupt in joy. Jesus, though he was great, became small in his eyes. So that we, though small in our eyes, might be made great. Jesus, though he was great, his eyes. Philippians 2. Philippians 2. So that we who are small might be made great. And if you know that, if you know that because Jesus, though he was great, became small so that we, though small, might be made great, you won't feel the need to make yourself look And that mechanism that's in you and me. I want to try to look good. I want to try. I'm going to push down bad truth about me. That mechanism could be obliterated once and for all. Is that good news? See? But is this real to you? Annette, is this real to you? Nate, is this real to you? John, Sam, Christy, Annie. Is this real to you? 
If this isn't real to you, this mechanism that's in true all of us, this mechanism to hide and to pretend and to deny reality, this mechanism will never be dealt with. The other thing, you can never be in community with other people. Stop saying you want community when you don't want accountability and commitment. Stop saying you want and you need community when you are unwilling to be accountable and to be totally committed. And the only way you can be accountable and totally committed is when you can look at Jesus and go, you became small. So God the Father will look at me and go, look at him. Church, are you ready to do this? Here's what I would love for us to do. And I'm almost hesitant to do this, but you see, we're going we're gonna, to, I'm almost hesitant to do this, but some of you have never admitted that self-deception is a powerful force in your life. Are you willing to do that today? In front of your brothers and sisters? No, I'm serious. Are you willing to stand up and go, I want to pray for you. And by the way, I'm going first. Not just because I'm standing up here in the pulpit. This is a powerful, powerful mechanism that's at work in my life. Self-deception. No, but not really no, because I don't want to know. I want to ask, if this is you, and you want to begin the journey, difficult, hard journey, Will you stand up from where you are? Come on, church. Come on, church. Come on, church. Come on. Come on, church. Come on. Come on. Some of you have never, ever, this is the very first time in your whole life that you've even admitted that this is a problem. Anybody? Is there anybody? I'm going to literally give like 30 more seconds. Because I believe there, there is someone sitting there and there is a massive war in your heart right now going, don't you dare stand up, sit down. You need to obey. Listen. Is there anybody else? Oh, is there anybody else? And those of you that are standing, here's what I would love for you to do. Just... Just lift your hands. Put your hands out in front of you. Just, just You don't have to raise that. Just like that. Because when I do this, when I do this, this to me, this to me is my physical, physical prayer and sign of vulnerability and dependence on my heavenly Father. It's me stretching my hand out and saying, I need you to pick me up. I need you to hold me. I need you to guide me. Because I can't. for those of you my courageous amazingly courageous brothers and sisters as you're standing right now the good news your heavenly father already knows nothing is surprising to him but it will be healing for you it will be totally healing for you no not overnight not easy 
next minute or so, right where you are, and you can pray this prayer just quietly on your own. Tell God that truth about you that you have been unwilling to admit even to yourself. And definitely to other people, tell God the truth. Some of you, it may begin, God, I have an fill-in-the-blank problem. Some of you, it may be, God, I have yet to forgive blank and my heart is hard. Some of you, it's, God, my marriage has been in trouble and unhealthy and toxic for years. I don't know what to do. Some of you, it's, I don't even know where to begin. All I know is I just stood up. brothers and sisters that are standing here in the next moment and I'm going to pray for all of us and then we're going to give our tithes and offering. Just remain standing if you're standing for a second. Put your hands lifted up. Father, you know their story. You know their struggle. You know their journey. You know their problems. You know their addictions. You know our our failings, our brokenness. You know, you know, you know. None of this is surprising to you. But as we take that step of faith and vulnerability and risk saying, God, I do. them the boldness and the courage to let someone else know at some point that the body of Christ, that the family of God might truly be family to us in this healing journey. We cannot do this alone. We need you and we need each other.